welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today, Jill's pin is um, from Planned Parenthood, something I'm wearing in honor of our guest who I got to meet during a Planned Parenthood speech I was giving, but also because the topic means it is an organization that we should be supporting. Absolutely. In June, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, two Supreme Court decisions that guaranteed reproductive rights for all women. Right after that decision, we released uh, a f- episode featuring a guest, Sevia Tamarkin, the award-winning investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker who produced Birthright, a war story. Uh, that was a film that predicted the chaos and consequences of the anti-reproductive freedom movement And we also featured Jim Obergefell, the plaintiff who won the case in the Supreme Court decision that established the right to same-sex marriage, a right that Dobbs puts in jeopardy. uh, And we will talk about that and also much more. And today we continue that discussion with Michelle Goodwin, who is a reproductive rights and constitutional law scholar. I had the privilege of meeting Michelle when I spoke in California at the Orange County Planned Parenthood group. And I know that she will be adding greatly to our continuing conversation about the consequences of the Dobbs decision and what can and must be done to protect women's bodily autonomy and freedoms. Michelle is a chancellor's professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and the founding director of the Center of Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Michelle is also an elected member of the American Law Institute, as well as an elected fellow of the American Bar Foundation and the Hastings Center. She also frequently appears on MSNBC and other media networks to talk about reproductive rights. We are delighted to have Michelle join us today. Thank you for joining us today, Michelle. We're really excited to be talking to you. It is my pleasure to join you. This has been a while in the making, and I'm just so eager to be in conversation with both of you. We're so glad. And we've covered Dobbs before on this podcast. And I think at this point, our listeners probably know that the decision overturned Roe and Casey and left it to the states to control um, access to safe abortion. So I'd like to start by asking you some of the ways states have responded since uh, the Dobbs decision was released. Well, that's a really good question. You know, they they say, Victor, that you have to hear something seven times in order for it to really <laughs> resonate. So if we do go back to and through the decision and what uh, that history is, that's uh, I think that the, your listeners would probably benefit yeah, yeah. from it. Certainly our lawmakers and our justices would. But since uh, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, with the Dobbs decision, what we've seen are what are called trigger laws. That is laws that were already uh, enacted, but had not gone into effect because Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But by overturning both of those decisions, it meant that unlawful anti-abortion laws suddenly after Dobbs were lawful. And it's also meant not only the sort of trigger laws going into effect and basically about half of the country having various laws that would have conflicted with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but we also see very aggressive and assertive stance coming from not only lawmakers, 
but as well um, prosecutors claiming that they will go after doctors in their states, that they will go after doctors in other states, that they want to restrict the right to travel, which is something that's been fundamental to uh, American life, even preceding the Constitution that we have now in the United States. Uh, We've seen lawmakers want to intervene against people being able to use the word abortion, such as librarians helping individuals to search about abortion. So in the wake of Dobbs, it's it's really become a very chilling landscape. Mm. And I'll just give a couple of examples and wait for your next question. But, you know, horrifically, we saw the case of a 10 year old girl who had to flee Ohio to get to Indiana in order to be able to terminate her pregnancy after rape was in that case that we heard a politician, the uh, the attorney general of the state of Indiana, saying that he would seek to investigate the doctor who performed that abortion. We saw in Wisconsin a woman bleeding for more than 10 days after an incomplete miscarriage because doctors feared the potential for prosecution, the potential for investigation, if they had provided the care that they typically would have, which would have been immediately to help the patient. We've seen uh, a case that involves a mother and daughter being prosecuted because a mother helped her daughter with a self-managed abortion. I mean, so it's just been a wild landscape and uh, and it's been quite chilling. And uh, it's been something that not only affects abortion, but affects myriad other constitutional rights. I want to follow up more on the trigger laws that you mentioned. So how many states currently have these trigger laws in effect? So we have about two dozen states that have some version of a trigger law. Now, in terms of going into effect, it you know, it's a moving target, right? So right away, there were just above a dozen of states that right away had laws that would go into effect. But there are num- there are two, over two dozen states um, that have trigger laws of some sort. Now, not all of them are as draconian as, let's say, a six-week abortion ban, which we saw in Texas even before the Dobbs decision. Some of them allow for more weeks in order for a person to be able to terminate a pregnancy. Not all of them are as draconian as the Mississippi uh, law, which provides no exceptions for rape or incest, but far too many of them do, a feature of anti-abortion legislating that we would not have even seen five years ago, but that too is a space that has been weaponized. Mm -hmm. And one of the darkest things I find about this is that these Republican states that have these trigger laws in effect, they were waiting for the Dobbs decision to come out. And then uh, they triggered, I guess, these laws, which is just so cynical. It's like they knew this was coming. And then they and then these laws went into effect. Can you talk a little bit more for our audience about some of the other things that are in some of these uh, trigger laws and bills? Well, you know, I, I think you, you laid this question so well, and here's one, one thing that I want to add to it in terms of the very conservative state legislatures that are crafting these laws where they've become quite prolific. I think it's important that we always remind our, our, our you know, listeners, viewers, people who are tuning in, that what we see is a species of something new in terms of where Republicans are. Roe v. Wade was a seven to two opinion. 
Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman was put on the court by Richard Nixon, right? So what we see today is something that is far off the rails. So it can't be justified as these are just Republican principles and values because they are not. Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, served as the treasurer of Planned Parenthood. Hmm. So part of the rhetoric today is that, well, this has always been Republican platform values. I mean, that is what this very kind of far right extremist Christian nationalist, all of that kind of combined movement that definitely has footholds uh, in white supremacist movements, not something that, you know, has to come from me, but it's something that we know from uh, the investigations done by um, various organizations and, and our federal government. So so what we see today in terms of this extremism isn't kind of the mainstream and wasn't even the part of the conservative part, party of the, of the Republican Party, but instead is a kind of ideological bent that is deeply steeped in evangelicism and uh, that is not consistent with the history of where Republicans stood on these issues. And I just want to to frame that because sometimes there are listeners who might think, well, you know, I have to think this way. This is where our principles and values always were. That's just not the case. That's that's really propaganda. But to your larger point, uh, in terms of the queuing up, basically what we see, and it's important to unpack this for what it all means. What we're seeing now is the kind of fantasy of a Jesse Helms, right? This is this is more like Jesse Helms kind of Republican Party than what would have been a George Bush Republican Party, or even for that matter, Ronald Reagan, even though Ronald Reagan, you know, dabbled with, you know, people who were anti-abortion and um, a very significant international policy, the Mexico City policy comes from Reagan dabbling with the anti, you know, abortion, you know, movement. But anyway, I, I just wanted to level set with that. That said, um, you know, between 2010 and 2013 is when we saw the most kind of egregious level of anti-abortion lawmaking. And we have to center that time for what that time was. There was more uh, more proposals to ban abortion and restrict contraception um, in th- that three-year period than we had seen the 30 years prior combined. So then if we look at 2010, what did that represent? We've got Obama in the White House and we see the rise of the Tea Party, right? That's what's being curated at that time. And we can't look at abortion in isolation from other matters that were being curated at that time. You know, anti-immigration, voter suppression. And again, if one thinks about this with regard to the political parties, consistently, up until the same time that we see this kind of really prolific, aggressive attacks on abortion, around that time, we also see that with regard to voting, too. Mm. Prior to that time, we have, you know, consistently uh, Republicans supporting the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, right? Strong support that people should be able to vote, right? That these days and times when Black people had to guess how many bubbles on a bar of soap, how many jelly beans in a jar, gone, an anathema to our constitutional principles and values. Not something that Republicans wanted to have their stamp on at all. But what we see in the wake of the rise of the Tea Party are many aspects of our constitutional values beginning to shift downward in matters involving the rule of law. 
abortion happens to be one of those key areas. And so when we look at the kind of victories that are and happy dances that are being done now uh, by those who are in the anti-abortion you know, side, um, there's a lot of complexity to that and nuance that, that we need to bring out. So, um, Michelle, I want to move to an extension of what Victor was asking about, which was the trigger laws, to talk about states that didn't have trigger laws that are now passing draconian laws newly, um, Idaho and other places. Can you talk about some of the things that are in the new bills that are being passed to take advantage of what happened in Dobbs? Right. Well, what Dobbs did is it opened the door for, as you mentioned, for states to enact laws that would deny individuals the ability to deny women, girls, um, people who can become pregnant, deny them the ability to be able to terminate a pregnancy and to do so uh, with broad range, uh, which would include uh, no exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest, criminal punishments uh, being tethered to uh, these kinds of legislation, um, opening the door for investigating people who aid and abet individuals with being able to terminate a pregnancy. It's a period of time that I've been calling the new Jane Crow because so much of it resembles the kinds of ways that uh, sought to place people in fear, place Black people in fear. Yeah. The very movement um, is sort of very basic liberties uh, as being something that one had to be worried about. Um, and the new species of these laws also include threats against travel. Um, and, and here's something else that uh, it concerns me as well in the wake of Dobbs. And we saw this coming from Justice Thomas, where Justice Thomas said all other areas of privacy are up for grabs as well. Notably, he made the exception for interracial marriages, something that he benefits from. Exactly. Uh, and, and yes, exactly. But all other areas. And so what is also worrying, uh, Jill, in terms of the new trigger laws and just the new laws post Dobbs um, are the ways in which they conflate um, yeah. and risk conflating contraception with abortion so there are lawmakers that are now uh, threatening to come after IUDs and Plan B because they consider those to be abortifacients. Um, they do not terminate pregnancies. You, you won't achieve an abortion uh, by taking Plan B. You know, you won't achieve an abortion by having an IUD. They prevent pregnancies from actually taking place. But this is also something that's worrying too, Jill, which is the lack of science and, and health, sort of the negligence of fact within these particular spaces that have allowed for the weaponization of uh, health care. When you mentioned Plan B, I have to note that in the New York Times endorsement interviews for um, New York, the questions that were asked of candidates included, how does Plan B work? 
And not surprisingly, particularly because of how it was phrased, many of the candidates did not know how Plan B worked. And that's because they asked it as a scientific way, you know, how does it work? Not what does it do? Um, so that, uh, and maybe just to make sure that our audience is better informed than some of the candidates for New York uh, uh, office were, just explain what Plan B is and how that is different than the uh you know, than any other pill. Yes, right, right. Um, than the abortion pills, including mifepristol. Exactly. Um, so, yes. So I'm glad that you asked that question. I, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to get <laughs> talk about that. So it, what Plan B does, and it's considered the gold standard for cases, uh, for cases where a person doesn't want to be pregnant um, after sex. Uh, and especially for cases of rape, it has been long considered to be part of ethical medical care to inform an individual who's been raped um, that Plan B is available and that the doctor um, is willing to prescribe it to help them avoid a pregnancy from the rape. So what it does is it prevents the ova and sperm from being able to implant in the uterine wall. So a pregnancy doesn't occur until an egg is fertilized. So this means that um, the egg um, has to be within the uterus, that, that there has to be sperm, that these two meet, do their happy dance, um, and then make their way into the uterine wall where they will implant and then be able to grow into the stage of an embryo. And I appreciate the question for many different reasons, because we've become so far removed from medical science, from basic kind of reproductive healthcare understanding. So Plan B keeps that, uh, keeps the sperm and, and, and ova from being able to implant on the uterine wall, uh, and then with a menstrual cycle, then they're just simply washed away, as happens monthly. So that's what Plan B is is about. It, it doesn't cause an abortion. Um, and to have then an abortion means then that there is a fetus that is developing within the uterus at the time in which plan B is used there, there is, there's no fetus, right. Um, at, at all there. Yes. Okay. That's, <laughs> you know, and it's, no, it's that's such that, an important I, question. I, I, yeah. It was so interesting that people didn't know that. Um, and, and I thought it was sort of important. And I, I think the criminalization is one of the things that scares me the most because they've made it even to the extent that they might have allowed an exception for rape or incest. It's an affirmative defense after you're charged with a crime for the doctor mm -hmm. to say, well, but I did it because the woman's life was at risk, or I did it because this was a case of rape or incest. It's not, That's right. it's not that you avoid the charge. You have to go through being charged with a crime and then defending yourself. Um, and that seems to me to be at the same extreme as, for example, SB8, which allows, mm -hmm. you know, people to go after you for civil damages. Mm -hmm. um, so. I agree. And, 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 and let's walk through what that means because 
for states that are enacting laws where they say, well, we have an exception for rape or incest, or you can defend against in these cases, what does that mean? You know, so to just in plainly, if, if you're the doctor who's been charged, this means that you've been served by police. This means that a prosecutor has brought you up on charges uh, this means just like people see with <laughs> these kind of cop shows and whatnot, you know, the, the trip to the jail, you know, mugshots, fingerprints, things that are kept in databases, right? Mm-hmm. Because once you're in the system, you don't actually leave the system and people don't realize that. So even at the end, after one may have successfully defended oneself against charges, your Uh, fingerprints. And if you had to provide DNA evidence, it's now logged within uh, a system. And if you've been, you know, the mugshot, um, these days we have police departments that sell that information to private parties. And so your image may be online and very difficult to take down. In the case of someone who is um, a survivor of rape or incest, Uh, in these states that have those exceptions, um, that too is is not made easier simply Mm -hmm. by the fact that the state says, well, okay, we will allow those exceptions. They require that police reports are filed. If you're a child in this scenario, where do you go to file a police report? You know, it it can be so destabilizing within a family um, to, to... speak about these kinds of issues. Who's the adult that's going to take you? Sometime that adult might be the very person who's mm-hmm. abusing you. So how do you get to that stage to be able to do that? The other thing is that as a child, now you risk coming into contact with child protective services. Um, maybe you've had a great mom and maybe it's a neighbor next door, what have you. But women often suffer the brunt Uh, when their children have been abused, not by them, but by others, including their children being taken away from them. But then let's think about that. So a police report has been filed. You've been taken away from your parents. There are a number of foster agencies that are religiously affiliated. So now you're in a foster home. Maybe your foster parents will actually get you to the place where you need to terminate the pregnancy. But maybe you're in one where the foster family does not agree with abortion. And so you're stuck. I mean, for people need to understand that that even in the states where they've said, now we make an exception, that does not mean that those exceptions can be easily utilized or utilized at all. We mentioned two words that I think are so important to kind of capture this moment, criminalization and weaponization. And it's particularly disturbing given like you said, when Roe was decided, you had Republicans voting for that uh, case. And I'm wondering now, given polling and what happened in Kansas just a couple of weeks ago, uh, why do you think so many Republican elected officials and now, I guess, Supreme Court justices um, seek to restrict a woman's right to choose? That's a good question. So the court has a very different composition than it had even three years ago, four years ago. In a case that preceded um, this term, um, June Medical v. Rousseau, 
you see a very different court. So June Medical v. Rousseau, you have the Chief Justice John Roberts siding with the liberals on the court to strike down a Louisiana anti-abortion measure. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is still on the court. It's her last term on the court before she dies. It's 2019-2020. And to just see that difference in the matter of time between 2019 and the 2021-2022 term is really quite striking. And I think it's worth some deliberation, too, about John Roberts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where he sits within all of this. Uh, He is not a fan of reproductive rights, but I do think he cares about the rule of law. Now, clearly, there are some areas in which I think that he, too, has shown himself to be um, vulnerable, I think, to the fallibility of these times. But within the context, it was notable in June Medical v. Rousseau, the Supreme Court, just three years before, had struck down two Texas anti-abortion laws And it was notable what Louisiana was doing in that case. Louisiana brought to the court the same same language, same kind of law that the Supreme Court had just struck down three years before. And so in that case, I think that John Roberts, the chief justice, had to think about, well, the legitimacy of the court. Right. You can't just two or three years after having a case that's decided five to three, striking down these Texas laws, somehow change because Justice Gorsuch is on the court, because Kavanaugh is on the court. And so he sides with the liberals in that decision. But the court has changed now. And it's worth noting the threats that he received afterwards, including by prominent Republicans who said it's time for him to step down, time for him to retire. He's not carrying the water. And that actually shows the influence of political partisanship into our court. Our court shouldn't be above political part- partisanship. Ideological differences, There's there have always been that. But the space that we're in now is very different. And so this court now is very different in the wake of three nominees from President Trump, who ran on a platform saying that he would only appoint justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade, which also is something very interesting, which hasn't really been picked up much in news media, which is that it really sets up a kind of quid pro quo. You want this fancy title, this important position, whether it's a district court, court of appeals, or Supreme Court, here's the water that you must carry for me. Here's the political water that you must carry for me. And I wish that there were a deeper discussion about that too. That is an interesting question. Definitely. And, you know, we remember what Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett said during their confirmation hearings about precedent being important and how they're going to uphold Roe, but clearly none of that was true. Um, Maybe let's talk about the political fallout. Um, There was a lot of speculation about whether um, the Dobbs decision would be the type of issue that motivates people to turn out and vote. Do you think that this is, especially for Democrats and young people? Well, it certainly is. I think anybody who cares about um, the rule of law, who cares about freedom, about our Constitution being real and not simply illusory in terms of what it represents, uh, will be motivated to vote. Look, at the back of this, and we think about Kansas, clearly the, the overwhelming votes in Kansas 
to recognize that abortion is a constitutional right in that state, clearly those votes were not all Democrats. Mm-hmm. They weren't. You know, the, the, there, there were Republicans who voted along with Democrats in order uh, to preserve abortion rights in that state. And when you think about it, it's sort of the backdrop of it is that if you're a Republican mom, you have to think about if your daughter is assaulted by the neighbor next door, down the street, whomever, should your 10 year old have to become a mother because some person in the legislature, some group in the men in the legislature say that your 11 year old, your 10 year old, your nine year old needs to become a mother because that's where their religious views are. Right. And at the end of the day, you have to think pragmatically about that, because the reality is that, you know, one doesn't want to be alarmist. But the truth of it is sexual assault exists. I, I want to also point out that oftentimes those people who say for you, this is the rule. If you change the question and say your daughter has been raped, mm-hmm. the answer is different. Uh, I know I've gone through this with um, Catholic office holders and it's amazing how their opinion changes. I had the argument that one said, well, um, we would do something that wouldn't be considered abortion right after. And I said, okay, your daughter has been raped and uh, is left unconscious and isn't found until it's too late to do whatever the Catholic religion allows. And there was a huge pause and a change of mind. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's one thing to have these religious views apply to everyone other than yourself. But I, I want to ask you about a New York Times piece that you wrote right after Dobbs was released. Uh, it's called No Justice Alito, Reproductive Rights is in the Constitution. And we'll attach um, a link to that article in our show notes. And I'm going to read you part of it and ask you to talk about this. You wrote, The overturning of Roe versus Wade reveals the Supreme Court's neglectful reading of the amendments that abolished slavery and guaranteed all people equal protection under the law. It means the erasure of black women from the Constitution. Um, I want you to talk more about the amendments you're referring to and how they played a crucial role in establishing reproductive rights for women. Um, but, But also, I think there was a lot of historical inaccuracy that underlays the uh, decision. And so if you could talk about those two things, I would appreciate it. Thank you for the question, Jill. It's a, it's a stunning decision for its um, errors and its omissions. It, it really is. You know, people speak tongue in cheek when they say things like, oh, you know, a first year law student would have done better a second year law student. But the reality, Jill, really Uh, Really, I would have expected more from a second year law student or a student at the end of the semester in constitutional law. Uh, The kind of cherry picking of of language and so forth. So so let me just start off with the following, which is that um, Justice Alito claims, you know, makes these claims that abortion was something that was not rooted in in history. Um, at all, that it couldn't be found, that in fact, when it could be found in American history, it was connected with criminalization. This is not true. 
pilgrims were performing abortions, um, indigenous people were performing abortions. To those who would question, well, abortion is not written as a word in the Constitution, neither is labor and delivery. <laughs> it would just so normalize that these were human functions, right? We don't see that. We don't see pregnancy in the Constitution. So this idea- We don't see women time, in the Constitution. <laughs> we certainly don't, right? You know, we, we really don't. And, and that's the woman's side. And imagine what language we would need to see for men, right? So, so what does that mean? If we don't see pregnancy, we don't see, you know, abortion and whatnot. Do we see erection in the constitution? No. And I know that for listeners, I may say, oh my gosh, we'd never see that. Well, tell me what it is on the male side that we would need to see in order for us to yeah. show that the framers were contemplating sex in the constitution. What's the male part of that? You know, what, what is, what are the words? What are the words that we need to see? Right? So, Abortion becomes criminalized in the United States in the lead up to uh, the Civil War and the very aggressive efforts that are taking place by abolitionists as they are calling out and had been, had been for centuries, calling out the horrors of American slavery. And one key aspect of the horrors of American slavery, which had been written about and spoken about by members of Congress and the New York Times, by abolitionists, was the raping of black girls and women. You know, a key, if, you know, I say in that piece, if cotton was king, then black women's reproduction was queen. And it was, there were receipts for this. I mean, it was such a fundamental part. And look, Senator Charles Sumner was nearly beaten to death in the halls of Congress two days after giving a speech about the horrors of slavery being the sexual subordination, the rape, and the profiting off of the bodies of Black girls and Black women. He had to take three years off before he could come back to Congress. He was so severely injured by this, uh, by members of Congress who were slaveholders, right? So when we think about the sort of backdrop, who the framers are, had the framers been thinking about sexual subordination? Had they been thinking about involuntary reproductive servitude? Yes, they had. You know, Senator Charles Sumner led the way with the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. This was part of what they wrote about, part of what they spoke about. You know, this idea that it was not a part of any imagination is ridiculous because in the New York Times, you know, there were articles about all of this, this involuntary reproductive servitude. You know, famously, Sojourner Truth, who penned the speech and delivered the speech, Ain't I a Woman? So many people know that terminology, even mm -hmm. if they don't know it was Sojourner Truth. They like that, 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 that terminology has lasted the decades and centuries. And in that, she spoke about, she said, and I bore 13 children and saw nearly each one torn from my arms and nobody heard my cry but God, ain't I a woman? Mm -hmm. Harriet Jacobs, who wrote the book, Incidents, the memoir, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, writes about how being preteen, having to escape the grasps of the man who owned her and knowing that it was only a matter of time before she would be placed into involuntary reproductive servitude. So the basic bottom line is this, that in the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, it did not apply just to black men. Mm -hmm. And if we're to understand that it applied to black women too, then it meant not only their labor in the cotton fields, but what they were subjected to in terms of reproductive chattel. Well, you've given us a lot of lines that are going to be the um, title of this 
particular episode. Uh, My favorite so far, though, is Jane Crow, but involuntary reproductive servitude could also be a a title. Um, But anyway, uh, back to Justice Alito. Um, Yes. His his (laughs) argument for abolishing reproductive rights um, is... Did any of his arguments have any merit? Um, Look, you know, so so what we haven't talked about are mater- maternal mortality, and we haven't talked about the uh, treatises that he cites, the the authors of treatises that he cites. So notably, in the draft leaked opinion, which was a story, but not the story, um, we all saw that Justice Alito was citing, you know, um, scholars like Blackstone and Hale. Well, Blackstone and Hale were notable for writing about um, coverture as being an important feature of law uh, and coverture provided that women lacked independent personhood and that as lacking independent Mm. personhood, they became the chattel of their husbands. Mm. And coverture and this ideological framework uh, provided then that there could be, should be no punishment for men for the physical correction of their wives, physical correction, meaning domestic violence, or for the sexual violence against women. They spoke specifically about how it would be impossible for a man to rape himself. And since women had no identity whatsoever to recognize and were essentially invisible, then husbands should not be punished for the rape of their wives. It's worth noting the legacy of that kind of thinking in American law, uh, which lasted up until the 1980s and 90s, which has now been revitalized by Justice Alito, that being that in American law up until the early 1990s, there were men defending themselves against horrific rapes of their partners and wives based on this kind of thinking that men can't rape their wives. Their wives are so invisible that there should be no punishment. And there were states that upheld this. But this is the kind of scholarship that Justice Alito cited in this opinion. It's really quite chilling. I'm going to put air quotes around scholarship in your last sentence because (laughs) it is so not scholarship. And no. I mean, women didn't have any rights under the Constitution until 1920 when they got the right to vote. But they still aren't in the Constitution. One of my... That's why most, we need the ERA. Yes, thank you for saying that, because that's my yes. new favorite cause is fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment. If anything proves the need for it, it is the Dobbs decision. Um, Absolutely. And and Dobbs does more than that because it takes away a right recognized for more than 50 years. Which is unheard of. Okay, so can you think of any prior example of a right being taken away? No, this doesn't exist. And I think it's important that this is put in frameworks, too, because, you know, the backdrop is that people could say, well, the court shouldn't be in the position of creating rights, granting rights, but let's level set. We're talking about a Supreme Court that's been complicit in the complicit uh, in the undermining of constitutional principles and values, even after the ratification of the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendment, denying women the right to vote, denying women the ability to become attorneys, denying women the opportunity to be able to serve on juries, um, opening up the door 
two separate but equal policies so that when the Supreme Court began striking down such laws and expanding rights, it was doing what should have been done hundreds of years beforehand, right? So when the Supreme Court affirmatively struck down laws that criminalized abortion in 1973, then the Supreme Court was resetting something that should have been bodily autonomy and privacy for women, right? But I will also add to our conversation that by the Dobbs decision, not only does the court trample 49 years of American jurisprudence, um, it does so for a longer length of time, because when we think about Skinner v. Oklahoma, 1942, the Supreme Court Justice Douglas writes the opinion. It's a unanimous decision. The United States Supreme Court says that it is a violation of human rights and civil rights when a state intervenes against someone's reproductive destiny and their ability to be able to make their own choices with regard to their reproductive future. It is a case that involves a petty criminal and thief. It's an Oklahoma law that provides for the uh, non-voluntary, involuntary sterilization of people who are petty thieves. Um, And in this case, we have someone who's been a chicken thief right, which exposes the poverty. Notably, Oklahoma makes an exception. The law does not apply to people who are white collar criminals, right? So applies if you're stealing chickens, but not if you've just robbed people of their pensions, not if you've taken away their bank accounts, all of these kinds of of things. And in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court says that this may not stand. A state may not impose its own tyrannical views against a person Mm. and their reproductive destinies. So when I think about what the Supreme Court has done in Dobbs, I think about it not just in terms of Roe v. Wade, but this longer arc of history that preceded Roe v. Wade. And, And one added point, we know that justices are often associated with a particular theory of law. So we know for example, that Justice Kennedy was central to um, marriage equality and also establishing um, LGBT equality more broadly. He authored a number of those cases. Well, Justice Douglas not only authors the opinion in Skinner v. Oklahoma, he authors the opinion in Griswold v. Connecticut. So we see that the court is thinking about, it is paying attention to reproductive health rights and justice. It is not out of the blue as Justice Alito would make it like, oh, nobody's ever been thinking about this. There's no legacy within the court. There's no legacy within constitutional law. There's no legacy within the, you know, framers. All untrue. All right. Well, I'm going to turn this back over to Victor with just one repeat of ERA is necessary. So Victor, take it away. That is completely fascinating. So a couple of months ago, we had on Sevia Tamarkin, who produced this chilling documentary called Birthright, A War Story, and you were featured in it. Um, First, briefly describe to our audience what the documentary was about. And that was just for our audience. That was produced in 2017. And many of the things that you warned about then are happening right now. And I'm just wondering if you can address our audience. How early on did you and other reproductive rights scholars and activists begin fearing that something like Dobbs would happen? 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And... So 20 years ago, and very aggressively, assertively, 12 years ago, 
began really laying out for people, here is what's happening and here's why we should all be concerned. You know, in part, Victor, it's because Black women and brown women were the canaries in the coal mine. And I was able to see and pay attention to what was happening to them, even when they wanted to carry pregnancies to term. So if there could be the criminalization, the civil punishments, the the interference um, within their pregnancies, um, that this was then a violation of a broader understanding of reproductive rights. And that reproductive right includes not only abortion, but myriad other issues that are associated with one's reproductive capacities. And I saw that already being trampled and began bringing attention to this issue. But I think that so many people believe that it could never be that Roe v. Wade would fall such that then, you know, many people ignored what was the lead up to this particular period of time. We have a lot of questions left. I know we mentioned the importance of establishing the Equal Rights Amendment, um, but what would you urge our audience to do to address this issue? And, um, you know, what would you suggest happen um, in the response to what happened in Dobbs? And maybe to voting rights. I was just going to broaden the question to say it's so important that our audience is active and uh, involved. And so what's your advice on what they can do to defend and safeguard women's rights in general, not just uh, choice, but those, uh, and not just women's rights. I think there are a lot of uh, rights that are being- LGBTQ rights, Absolutely, that that are being endangered. And and possibly, although um, Thomas, who benefits from the interracial marriage um, uh, being allowed, even that on a logical basis has to be put at risk by how they phrase the decision. So what what should our audience be doing other than voting for uh, candidates who will support these rights? Is there something else? Well, well, voting rights are critically important. And I think educating themselves and educating other individuals are critically important. You know, these things work hand in hand. When Justice Alito says, if you don't like this decision, then just go vote. Well, voting in Kansas is one thing. Voting in Mississippi is another Voting in Texas is another. So figuring out ways that people not only vote, but also assist other people to be able to get to the polls is really important. And notably, you see, you know, in Georgia, efforts to undermine helping people in that regard. Um, You know, so I think that helping people to get to where they need to be, there are abortion funds as well that are raising money in order to be able to help people who need to, but are strapped, you know, financially strapped from leaving their state to be able to go elsewhere to be able to terminate uh, their pregnancies. And I think that alerting uh, the lawmakers in one state about where one stands on these issues is also critically important. I, I think that we can't be in the space of thinking that, well, it just won't matter. My voice doesn't matter. People's voices do matter. We've seen that time and time again, the suffrage movement. We saw that in abolitionist movement. We saw that during the civil rights movement. And I guess I'll just close with this. 
This is a coming of a third reconstruction. If the first reconstruction was the abolition of slavery in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and then the second, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, this is the time of a third reconstruction where, Jill, we get the ERA. (laughs) And we also think about how we center the lives of the most vulnerable Americans and make our Constitution truly meaningful for all Americans. And and I would add that goes down to the state level, especially now where the Supreme Court has said, oh, it's just up to the states. The feds can't do it. The states can. And Absolutely. so vote all the way down the ballot. And all the way attention. down. Yeah. School, school, school boards, boards yeah. zoning boards, yeah. city councils. And across the country, there have been the efforts to kind of shoehorn people in. So communities that are um, that are that embrace diversity, embrace belonging, inclusion, all of that, find that they now have city councils that don't reflect their values. Right. These are kind of Trojan horse kind of politics taking place across the country. So be very careful with voting and vote all the way down. If you want your child to get a great education and to be able to read books, (laughs) read the books that Jill was able to read, that I was able to read, that Victor was able to read, then make sure you pay attention to who wants to come into your school board. This is not a country where we need books written by Toni Morrison going up in flames. So as you know, I I wear hashtag Jill's pins. And today I'm wearing Planned Parenthood because that is where you and I first met was when I was speaking in Orange County Planned Parenthood. But I also have now adopted a necklace. I am wearing a vote necklace, which I will not take off until after at least after the November election, when I hope there is a huge tsunami blue wave and that we will protect all these rights. And I'm talking about at the state level as well as the federal level. So I now have my double message going. And we want to thank you, Michelle, for your time today. We learned a lot. um, And I, I particularly, I have to just say, I hadn't ever thought about going back to Douglas in 1942. In fact, I'm sort of shocked that Douglas, who was still on the court when I was in law school, was actually on the court in 1942 before I was born. So that's, I mean, that has me shook. But um, he, he was a great justice. And the sterilization really was a recognition of some freedoms that have been taken away. So yeah. let's Let's just vote. And thank you, Michelle, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you you so much, Jill. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you found it as illuminating as Jill and I did. And then we hope that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can find us on YouTube. Subscribe to us there. Also, wherever you follow your podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform. And be sure to also leave us a five-star review and rating as that helps others find this podcast and helps us tremendously. Thank you so much again for tuning into this episode and we'll see you next week for another great episode.